Good morning. It sure is good to be together. If you would open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. I want to start with a, a little poll of the audience. always like to get y'all riled up as we're beginning, so um, I'll start with a, with a fun one. This is for all of our ladies, and it doesn't matter how old you are, this is not just for our teenagers. I want to ask this question. How many of your daddies made you change clothes before you left the house at some point? See, y'all are just as dishonest as the first service was. There was not nearly enough hands being raised. I, I, I know that, that that happened this morning at our house. We had to have a change of clothes because Daddy said on the, on the way out. Um, I feel like that. I told him early service I may have to swap to honesty as the topic of my sermon. So. All right, I'll ask a, another question. How many of you uh, agree with the recent decision to place a dress code on members of Congress? Have y'all been following that? Yeah, that's been an interesting one all over the news. Um, John Fetterman decided he wanted to wear a hoodie and, and shorts in the Capitol, and it kind of there was this unspoken dress code in the Senate, and they decided to kind of uh, make it official. You know, when you look online for dress codes or... Um, to, it, it was funny the things that popped up. There were a lot of charts like you see up here that tried to describe the difference between business formal and business casual and casual. It was really interesting how different everyone's take on these different dress issues were. Um, some seemed to think business casual was what I would consider very formal. Of course, here I am preaching in khakis and a blue shirt, and I have for a year, so I obviously have lower standards than some. That was another question I asked early service. How many of y'all have a problem with my, uh, my blue shirt and my khakis? See, it wasn't very long ago, it wasn't very long ago that this would have been not okay. And, um, but, but things have evolved and, and things have changed and we're kind of in a little bit of a different place. Determining how to dress is a difficult thing. Setting a dress code and enforcing it is a difficult thing. Um, those of you who work in the school system know all too well the difficulties of that. I mean, we as people always want to push the limits of what's okay and, and what's appropriate as pertains to our dress. The fact is this, what we wear is culturally driven. But there are some, um, some principles that are under the surface that don't change. So while what we, may, uh, what we may deem as acceptable in a certain situation may change over time, there are a certain subset of, of principles that guide our thoughts in that that I don't think have changed at all. I think we all know that what we wear reflects who we are. I think we all know that what we wear reflects who we are. I think that why, that's why it can be such a, a painful thing for our young people trying to decide how to dress because they're trying to figure out who they are and how to reflect that externally. The, the same is true from our pressure that we put on people and our expectations about what, what we expect them to wear. Pressure from others comes from how they believe we should be displaying ourselves. And so while we've certainly uh, uh, modulated and changed in our opinions of the mechanics of what that looks like, the, the principles are absolutely the same. This has been a cultural thing since the beginning of time. Back in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were, realized they were naked and they covered themselves with fig leaves. 
And then God stepped in and he gave them clothing of, of animal skins. And I think ever since, we've struggled with the best way to clothe ourselves. This week's lesson is um, no less challenging than last week's. It's really kind of a continuation. It said it was going to be a two-part lesson. I think the concept is the same. This is really the third week in a row that we've approached this same concept, and it's the idea of, of holiness. I use the word sanctification. It's our kind of progression towards purity, and it's the change that happens after salvation. And so we're, we're still talking about that today, but we're talking about it in a different light because last week we discussed the elements of our earthly nature that have to be put to death. And so the image we used was the, the image of, of maybe a, a tree severed from the roots. And we talked about how when the, the roots are removed and when that core identity changes, that while the foliage on the outside that was cut off may appear to be alive for a while, it is most certainly dead because it is not being fed. And that's the way that our, our sanctification happens. We, we sever those earthly things from the things that are feeding them when our insides change, and it causes those outward things to be put to death. The reason I chose to set this week aside separate is because this week we're going to talk about the new things that step in and replace all of those things that we put to death. This new self, and the reality is this, I think it's a lot more fun to talk about the new things than the things that we need to get rid of. Um, and, and I think we can catch ourselves skipping ahead and trying to ignore maybe these earthly things that dwell within us. And, and just think that we can skip ahead and, and demonstrate these glorious heavenly things that we're going to learn about today. But that's not how it works. Death must come first so that resurrection can come next. For us to put on new clothes, we have to first take the old clothes off. In other words, we start with an inside change. And then the outside changes are what follow. So step one was last week. We're going to back up to Colossians 3, and I want to read 5 through 9 again as a refresher. Paul told us this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. You see, right here, a shift in the text occurs. He kind of shifts metaphors from life to death, and he talks about this putting on and putting off, and so here at the end of verse 9, you've put off the old self with its practices. And then we step into verse 10 and he says, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You have put on the new self which is renewed in knowledge. And then we get to our final therefore statement. In the New American Standard, it says therefore. In the ESV, it says put on then, in verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This put on that this verse begins with is the same word that we read back in verse 10, Put on then these five elements. He gives us these five characteristics of this new life, this way that people who are in Christ are supposed to dress, the things that we are supposed to wear. You know, just like last week, he started with, you have died, therefore put to death. Hey, that's interesting. You've died. In other words, your core has changed. Therefore, these external things must change as well. He says the same thing this week. You have put on the new self. Therefore, put on these garments. In other words, this is the outward reflection of who you are on the inside. These that we are about to study are the garments that make you look like Christ. Let's walk through them one at a time. As we're, doing, I want you to, as we're doing so, I want you to ask yourself this question, and I want you to be honest. Is this how you dress? Is this how you dress? The first one that he throws out there for us is compassionate hearts. The same word is used in Philippians 2.1, and it's translated sympathy. It's used in Romans 12.1 and 2 Corinthians 1.3, where it's translated mercies of God. So sympathy and these mercies of God, in that they're closely connected with the comfort that we receive from him. I think as we, as we think about compassion and what that would look like in our everyday lives, it, it maybe has to do with how we process and see the misfortunes in the life of another human. A Christian never rejoices in the misfortunes of others. We feel for people. We hurt for people. You know, I remember, it was probably a couple of years ago, driving up to my parents' house, they lived out in the country, and tangled in the net wire fence was this big, beautiful owl. Well, you can imagine how that feels to see this beautiful creature afraid and scared and tangled up, so we got gloves on and went up to it real carefully and untangled it from the fence and set it there, and it was exhausted, it couldn't hardly fly, and so we left. When we came back, it was gone, I don't know if it made it or not, but I like to think that it did. But man, when I, I pulled up to, to that creature, my, my heart had this, this feeling, this feeling of compassion, like this, this shouldn't be, and I, and I wanted to help. Now, it's funny that we can feel that way about a creature like that, because have you ever heard someone who lives out in the country talk about wild hogs? <laughs> it's a whole different attitude. I mean, it really is. Those things just no compassion whatsoever for those. They tear everything up. Uh, they, they multiply. You can't keep them under control. And so people have stopped feeling any sort of compassion towards them. And, and, and in fact, you'll hear people say things like, well, I could have shot that one, but I just gut shot it so it'd run off and die somewhere else. I don't want to have to deal with it. Okay, that, that's, I, I get it. 
But, but in that, I see these two polar opposites of where humans are capable of landing and how we view a, another living animal. And I think sometimes we're maybe guilty of living at two extremes in how we view people. You know that feeling of disdain and rejoicing and the pain of something or the feeling of wanting to step in and help? As we look at this, Paul says, your heart as God's people should be one of compassion. He doesn't give us any situational exceptions. He's basically saying the same pain that you feel when your child is sick, that's the the same pain that you should feel when your enemy is sick. That's the type of people that we are called to be. People who are clothed with Christ look this way. This is what we wear. The next one he steps us towards is, is kindness. It's closely related to compassion, but I think it's probably a little more action-oriented than attitude-oriented. This would encompass doing what is good and being helpful. We use this word a lot at our house, raising kids. And I, and I, I, and I understand that. We're, we're trying to teach them kindness, but you know the place where we probably struggle the most to be kind is with those who we are most comfortable with. And so we wrestle with that at our house, and we're always talking about it. I, I bragged a little bit on Brooklyn this morning, and she's not in second service, but I'll brag a little anyway so y'all can pat her on the back. We, uh, we, Brianna was eating lunch up at the school the other day, and one of the teachers walked by. It's not one of Brooklyn's teachers, but she walked by, and then she stopped, and she turned around, and she said, hey, I just wanted to stop and tell you that I have been watching Brooklyn at school, and she is so kind in how she interacts with the other students, I've seen her on the playground, and and I just want you to know that she's just is so kind. That was the word she used to describe her. And I thought, as a father, man, that makes you feel pretty good to get that type of compliment about your child. I mean, I see some of you parents nodding your heads because you've been in my same shoes when someone walks in and said, man, I noticed something that your child is doing. And I think if we feel that way about our children, how does our Heavenly Father feel when we step into this very unkind world surrounded by people who don't do good to others and these are the clothes that we wear and this is how we act? I think that he has to well up with, with pride at the, at the sight of his children, treating others with kindness. Those are the clothes we wear. The next one, humility, is a tough one. It turns us inward and forces us to kind of deal again with our attitude, not just about others, but our attitude about ourselves. Interestingly, it is the exact same word used in Colossians chapter 2, verses 18, in Colossians 2:23. In those passages, it's translated asceticism, and Paul talks about it as if it is a worthless attribute to have. And so it's interesting that the same word is used here. It seems that it is not an inherently worthless thing, but when they tried to use this, this false humility, this removing of these outward things as, as, a, as a means of earning salvation or as a means of presenting themselves to other people as, as qualified or worthy or deserving of salvation, well, in that regard, it was worthless. But here, when it, when it comes from the heart of someone connected to Christ, 
When it comes from the inside as a response to salvation, not in order to gain salvation, then it becomes something beautiful. You see, this humility isn't an attitude of self-deprecation. It's an attitude of of personal modesty. It's the attitude that Christ embodied. We read about it in Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. It is needing less for yourself and giving more to others. You know, I think a lot of times when I think of humility, I think about someone who is super awesome but doesn't talk about it much. I mean, I think that's where most of our minds go, and and certainly that is one of the ways we could uh, um, display humility, but that's that's really not what it was talking about. Humility is, is counting others as more significant. I mean, you can refrain from bragging but still be proud. You can deny yourself things and still be materialistic. Genuine humility starts with the proper view of others in relation to yourself. Now we move towards meekness or gentleness. And I think this characteristic is Jesus embodied. In 2 Corinthians 10.1 and Matthew 11.29, those are the, both of those passages, it directly calls Jesus meek or gentle. I think the reason that we view Jesus this way is because we recognize that as as God in the flesh, Jesus had all of the power. He could have called 10,000 angels, we sing, but he chose not to. And the reason is he chose to, to curtail his power and put it to work for the good of others. Meekness is not weakness, but it is power under control. One of the commentaries I was reading said it this way, it is the power that enables us precisely in situations of conflict with our fellow so to meet him that he experiences the criticism of his behavior not as condemnation but as help. I thought that was a pretty powerful way of looking at it. This idea of meekness could be presented as the soft touch of a Navy SEAL holding his newborn child. Or maybe better yet, with a multimillionaire CEO who's walking through his building and he sees his janitor taking a nap in the corner and instead of going out of a tirade and firing him and storming out of the building, he instead walks over and he has a conversation and he asks him how he's doing and he talks about the importance of his work and he thanks him for working days that are hard and he encourages him to do better. That's meekness. And that's the clothes we as Christians are called to wear. The last of the five is patience. We come to this virtue and we all have to kind of tiptoe around it. You've been told to be careful asking for patience because God might give you a situation to exercise that uh, characteristic and we hate waiting. So we're very careful about patience. There's certainly an element of waiting for the second coming in Colossians 1.1. He talks a little bit about that. But here in this text specifically, I think it's less about waiting and more about our interactions with people. I tend to think this is what it is um, because of how Paul takes this characteristic and expands on it in verse 13. So I think that verse 13 maybe could apply in some regard to all five of these, but specifically patience. In verse 13, he says this, bearing with one another 
And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Bearing with one another. I think Paul is saying something that we don't want to say very often, but we all think. People are annoying. Sometimes I'm annoying, and sometimes y'all are annoying. People, I, I mean, you are. People... People are a pain. People are immature and tiresome, and, and you are, and I am. And, and Paul steps into this, and he says, okay, look, I get it. If you're going to live in community, you're going to be annoyed with people. People are going to drive you crazy. You're not all going to see eye to eye, but you have to get over that and stop spending your time being annoyed. We bear with one another. Paul says, if that's your attitude when you are together, then you need to change clothes because that's trashy. We don't dress like that. We bear with people. We don't lose our cool. But it's more than just, more than just putting up with those who might grate on your nerves a little bit. It's more than just bearing with these annoyances. It also requires that we put up with sin and brokenness that hurts us. The text says, forgiving like you have been forgiven. Now, that's a powerful statement. Last Wednesday, we studied the parable of the unforgiving servant. And here, Paul confirms the same thing that Jesus taught. He said forgiveness and forgiving, they are, they are intimately intertwined. They really can't be separated from one another. The normal reaction to being forgiven is to develop the impulse to forgive. Now, I think it's noteworthy that in this text, Paul never addresses the offender. Kind of a side note, but, but he, he only directs towards those who were the offended. And I think there's something we can take from that, that repaired relationships often begin with forgiveness. That's how your relationship with Jesus started. And that's the posture we are to take towards others. That's the clothing that a Christian wears. Finally, he begins to wrap things up in verse 14, and he says this, And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So how is love different that he was able to, to set it off here by itself? Um, I, I look at that and think, okay, I, I see how some of these five characteristics I could maybe display without love, or at least outwardly, I could pursue some of these things with selfish motives. I certainly know that I cannot love without exhibiting these characteristics, so, so love requires them. Love is the superior, fastening, binding trait that ties these together and makes things meaning, meaningful. There's kind of two ways of looking at it here. We could view love as an, extend, as an extension of this metaphor of, of putting something on, it's the final piece of clothing, like maybe a belt or a, or a sash that's put on the outside and holds all of these things in place. But I actually am of the opinion that maybe that's not where Paul was going with this. Maybe that's the wrong way to look at it. I think that that stretches the metaphor a little bit thin, maybe waters it down a little much. I think the statement here in the text binds everything together. I think that little phrase pushes us past the clothing metaphor. Love is, is something that is intimately connected 
with every one of these elements. It's what makes them work together. The text says, in perfect harmony. That's how it binds them. The technical sense for the phrase or the word binds together is that of sinews or ligaments in the body. In fact, in Colossians 2.19, it's talking about Jesus being the head of the church, and he says, holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. And that same word is used there for ligaments. So, so love is is what connects each of these elements in the same way that your knee joint connects to your thigh to your shin. And in doing so, it, it allows them to work together for a common purpose. So compassion is linked to kindness and linked to humility and linked to meekness and linked to patience. And the linking element is love. It lets all of those work together in conjunction for a way that's productive and that moves us forward for the good of others. So I want to pause and ask ourselves here this question. Is this how we dress and I want you to be honest with yourself and, and, and consider, how do people view you? How are you interacting in the world? I mean, what does your social media profile look like? Are these characteristics on display? What is your reputation at work? What's your reputation here in this body? Do you live your life like Christ is all and, and, and in all? Do you forgive and bear with people and exude patience and meekness and humility and kindness and compassion? How are you known and seen in the community? When you see others living in sin, what's your attitudes towards them? When you see others who are different than you and, and vote different than you and make different choices than you, what's your attitude towards them? You know, we love talking about love, but is that how we live? Because Paul tells us, these are the clothes that a Christian wears. And I'm afraid that more often than not, we dress a lot more like the world than we dress like Christ. It's at this point that Paul shifts to what we look like collectively. It feels a bit like he's just tagging on extra things, like he's kind of finished his argument and then he says, and, and, and. But I don't think that's what happens. I actually think this is still an important part of his argument because he turns to us as a people and he says, okay, this is the corporate collective result of your living like this. This is what we as Christ people are gonna look like. And as we read the text, you're gonna see that we are a body of peace, a thankful people, a people full of the word. We teach and encourage and sing and we say and do everything for Jesus. Let's read verses 15 through 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In other words... We're to be a people who get along and don't fight. We are a people who are grateful despite our circumstances. We are a people who are constantly sharing and encouraging one another with these truths of Jesus that changed everything. We are a people obsessed with proclaiming the name of Christ, and we really don't do anything without thinking about it. That's the picture that he is painting. But there's something else here, something introduced, a huge theme in this book 
that I don't want you to miss. You see, in this last block of text, he points out that the word of Christ is being taught. And this is key because every single thing that we have talked about this morning, this picture that he has painted of Christian living, all of those flow from a knowledge of Christ. There is this theme of knowledge that's undeniable in the book of Colossians in this letter. Starting in chapter 1, verse 10, listen, he says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. In other words, these, these outward actions, these, these good works are t- associated with and tied to knowledge, the knowledge of God, a right seeing and understanding of Him. Colossians 1, 27 through 28, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. The, the knowledge of these realities of God and who he is. And then he continues, this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Being taught so that you can see the glories of God and Jesus and mature in Christ. Colossians 2, 2-3, through three, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The riches of the full assurance. And where does that come from? From understanding these true things, from knowing God, from knowing the mystery of Christ, the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's what he's getting at. In Colossians 3, 2, he says, set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. In other words, it matters what you are thinking about. In verse 10 that we read earlier, you've put on the new self. How is it renewed? Being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And finally here in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart towards God. Knowledge, truth, right thinking, this this is what motivates all that we are. Our clothing, these, these outward things that we wear, they are a function of our identity. And our identity to be right, for our identity to be right, requires a knowledge of the truth. So for us to dress this way, we must continually be refreshed and renewed and reminded of the glorious realities of Christ. Church, this is why we come together. This is what we're doing here. This is why we sing And this is why we teach. This is why we open that book and we read it and we study. This is why we meet and why we talk about these glorious realities of Jesus and all that he has done for us. That's one of the functions of why we come here so that we can press our hearts daily closer and closer to this knowledge, to this reality of who Jesus is and what he offers to us. Christian living simply oozes out of the life of a person who basks in the knowledge of him. Truthfully, I believe if you are struggling to put to death these earthly things that are in you, and if you are struggling to to put on these glorious realities that we've talked about today, then I think it's most likely you are deficient 
in your knowledge of Christ, that you haven't fully yet seen all that he is and all that he has to offer. It is seeing clearly who he is and what he stands for that motivates these actions, understanding his preeminence and centrality and the the hope of living in him, seeing and understanding the joy of being one of his children. This is a pleasurable and joyful place to be. When we see that, the selfishness that remains in each of us, I I believe it is fought and it is warded off. The knowledge of Jesus Christ is what puts that to death. And the closer that we can draw to him, the more that our purity is going to grow, the holier we are going to be, the more joyful lives we are going to exude. And as it culminates, it grows into this this fruit-producing attitude when our life is so consumed with him that we are obsessed. And here is how it looks. Whatever you do in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's how Jesus' people dress. Do you need to change clothes? If you're struggling, we are a people in whom the word of Christ dwells richly. We gather to teach and to encourage and sing and to be grateful to God. And part of our work here is helping to shape one another to look more like Christ. Part of our work here is pressing one another towards holiness. We would love to help you. We will study with you. We will pray with you. We will provide accountability. We will provide a, a place of acceptance and belonging. And every piece of that will be rooted in the knowledge and love of Jesus Christ. We're about to sing an invitation song. If you need restoration... If you would like to study, or if you would like to put on Christ in baptism, come forward as we stand and sing.